Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. It would be an understatement to say that Hollywood is undergoing major changes right now, but are these circumstances really unprecedented? I argue that things have actually changed a lot less than we want to believe over the last few months. The major difference is really just our level of awareness. And what we have become keenly aware of is how badly none of us want to go back to normal. Now, there is no question the pandemic has caused upheaval and instability, leaving us all wondering if we are going to weather the storm or if we're going to sink with the ship. And as the industry attempts to reopen, we're all grappling with difficult changes like working from home, safety protocols for returning to set or going back to the office, and of course, setting boundaries for the health and sanity of ourselves and our families. Now, though the change and uncertainty that we are all experiencing might feel new, it's surprising how little things in our industry have actually changed over the last several decades, specifically in regards to the working conditions and the insane demands put upon our time. Today's guest, Oscar-nominated editor Carol Littleton, who has edited such legendary films as E.T., The Big Chill, Silverado, The Accidental Tourist, Grand Canyon, Benny and June, and The Manchurian Candidate, just to name a few, by the way, she has endured many, many changes in her long career in Hollywood. She's worked her way into commercials, indie films, and then all the way up to the ranks of working with some of the best and biggest directors in the industry. She successfully made the transition from film to digital, but it was that change that required a greater focus on her movement habits and her healthy lifestyle choices so she could sustain her career and her well-being. And these habits have contributed to her vitality for her work and her zest for life, and you will hear all about those habits and more in our conversation today. Now, this is the second in the series of archival conversations that come from way back in the fitness and post days where I talk to Hollywood legends. And in this episode, we are clearly going to see that living a healthy lifestyle, weathering major industry changes, and enjoying a long and successful career are not mutually exclusive, pandemic or otherwise. 
I want you to learn from the cream of the crop how to be resilient and gracious in the face of adversity, no matter how uncomfortable the circumstances. All right, without further ado, my conversation with Oscar-nominated editor Carol Littleton. I'm here today with Carol Littleton, and this is an immense pleasure for me because if you're not familiar with Carol Littleton is, then you haven't done your study in the world of film editing and film history. Carol is the Oscar-nominated editor of such films as E.T., The Big Chill, Silverado, Grand Canyon, Benny and June, Dreamcatcher, and just a few of these other tiny little obscure movies you probably never heard of. So, Carol, it is such an immense pleasure to have you on the other end of my microphone today. Well, thank you very much, Zach. That's quite an introduction. Well, you deserve it. I mean, you are pretty much a legend in our industry. And anytime that you talk to people that have been around for a while and they talk about just some of the, the best and the brightest and the nicest people that help them get where they are, your name comes up in a lot of those circles. So not only do you have a pretty impressive resume, but you have an impressive list of people that have said that you helped them get where they are. And you and I actually connected originally um, via Raul Davalos, who is a good friend of mine, and he and I shared a wall on Empire for two years. And I know that you've worked with Raul on several films as well. And he was one of the many that spoke very, very highly of you and you helping him get where he is. Well, he was my assistant on several movies way back. Uh, one of which uh, we had an awful lot of fun was Silverado. Yeah. So what I really wanted to have you on the show for today, and for anybody that's listening, I just want you to understand the amount of toil and just what you and I had to go through just to get you on the other end of this microphone right now. It has taken us almost two months of rescheduling and multiple times where Skype didn't work and you had to set up a new Skype account. That didn't work. Then we got disconnected. And then of all things, when finally we got Skype to work, you had a pipe burst in your house. <laughs> so the <Chat> fixed. <laughs> right. So the universe did not want you and I to be on the same microphone at the same time. But guess what? We're here anyway. The reason that I really wanted you on the show is because you and I have had some extensive conversations offline in the past just about the lifestyle of being an editor and how things have changed over the last 30 to 40 years, but also more importantly, how they haven't changed as much as people like to think. I want to talk a lot about that. But before we do that, I just want to give people a little bit more background. I've given them the credits, but just kind of give them a sense of just you know, the, the elevator pitch for your history, kind of how you came up in this industry, how you got your big breaks and became the Carol Littleton. Then I want to dive into the lifestyle stuff. Well, I actually moved here in uh, here, meaning Los Angeles, in 1970. A couple of years after I got here, I married my then boyfriend, who's now my husband, John Bailey. We've been married for, I guess now it's been some 45 years, 44 years. I started out as a commercial editor because I could not get into the union. It was what they called then a closed shop. So I just said, well, I'll, I'll just do what I can. And I had my own company as a commercial editor for about uh, five or six years. Started first as a PA before getting into commercials, a PA for an agency director, agency uh, creative guy. And through that contact, I eventually had my own little company and tried to get into the union, eventually got into the union in 1976, 77, but couldn't work because of the seniority system, which meant that I was a group three with no seniority as an editor, and I couldn't work until all the group ones were working and all the group twos were working. 
So that meant that I was going to be unemployed. So I just kept on with my commercial company until I was offered a job on a feature and it was very low budget and kind of um, off the radar. So I did that and that kind of started my the switch from commercials to features. And once I made that switch with uh, pretty much with uh, Karen Arthur, who was a, a young director at the AFI with the Women's, Women's Directors Workshop. I did two of her films. One was called, um, oddly enough, the, the Mafu Cage, and the other one was called um, Legacy. And after that, I got then my first assignment on a, on a feature film, which was called French Postcards. And I got that essentially because I, I speak French and they needed somebody who could be on location in Paris. So that was very difficult assignment. <laughs> And then from there, I just simply got one film after another. I was very, very lucky. And here I am today, some 35, 38 films later, and um, still enjoying it. I love that, that doing your kind of career retrospective, you talk all about you have these little films here and there, you know, and then a couple of things happened and it's today. And there's there's a pretty giant range of names on your resume in between the legacy film, the French postcards film, and to being on this podcast right now. So let's just talk a little bit about how you went from working on these smaller films and, um, you know, working as an assistant or whatnot. And then all of a sudden you work on a film called Body Heat. And for anybody that doesn't know, that was just one of the seminal films of the early 80s. And then all of a sudden you're on what is known as one of the top quintessential family films of all time, all within the span of what looks like about two years. So talk about that period a little bit. It wasn't really two years because I had cut my teeth doing commercials and I guess they would call them cor corporate films, little little documentaries and so forth, for the nine or 10 years from the time that I started in film editing in the 70s until I got my first union assignment of my first, what I would call big job on French postcards. So it looks like I came out of nowhere, but in, in fact, I kind of paid my dues for seven, eight years, nine years before I started to do a, a sort of a rash of films but I guess you would have to say that my very big break came when I met uh, Lawrence Kasdan and Larry Kasdan when we actually got together to do Body Heat. And I have worked on nine, let's see, 10 of his films since then. And I would say that he is probably the main reason that I had a real spike in my career. Because Larry, if people don't know who he is, and I'm sure that most of the people who will be, watching, who will be listening to this will know, was the writer on uh, Empire Strikes Back and on Return of the Jedi. So when he and his association with Lucasfilm and George Lucas wanted to start directing, Lucas said, yes, that's fine. I will help you in every way that I can. And that's sort of was the launch pad for Larry's career. And the first film that Larry did was Body Heat. And I actually got a phone call to read the script and, and talk to Larry by virtue of his uh, knowing George Lucas. And my husband went to film school at the same time that George Lucas was at SC. So you can see it was a kind of a roundabout association with Lucasfilm that, that essentially introduced me to Larry. And that's how I, my, my career in feature films really started. 
And if I back up just a couple of paces, the writer-director of French postcards, as uh, Willard Hike and Gloria Katz, were very close friends of George's, and they wrote American Graffiti. So you see, I got into the orbit of young filmmakers, my contemporaries, sort of very on through that contact with George Lucas, Lucasfilm, uh, the director and producer of French Postcards, and also my husband, John Bailey, who's a cinematographer. So. Well, and I was going to say, your, your husband, he's, he's picked up a camera once or twice, correct? It's true. It's true. We, we have actually worked on a lot of films together. And that's probably, if a director has the courage to hire two key people who, who are actually married, it, it turns into actually a wonderful relationship. And we've done several films. John is a cinematographer, I as the editor, and uh, various directors. So it's, it's, been, it's been a great, great way to work and to come up through the ranks in film editing. So then what was the specific connection once you went from Body Heat all the way to E.T.? Because as most people know, uh, Michael Kahn is basically the quintessential, quote unquote, Steven Spielberg editor. So talk a little bit about how E.T. came about. Well, actually, it was very much a fluke, because if you'll, if you'll go back to, the, to 1980, 81, when E.T. was you know, in, in production and in post-production, Larry and I had just finished Body Heat. And Larry had just finished the script, and, and also the, uh, the filming was starting for Raiders of the Lost Ark. So Larry obviously knew Stephen through that connection of having written Raiders of the Lost Ark, and also George, because he was one of the co-producers on Raiders. Larry knew Stephen through their association on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Stephen was very involved with Poltergeist, and there were lots of problems on that film. And he, trying to get E.T. going at the same time, and Michael Kahn was doing Poltergeist. So he was not available to do E.T. And furthermore, E.T. was considered to be a low-budget film. I was going to be, it had followed 1941, and Stephen had gotten a deal at Universal, and they said that there was an absolute cap of $10 million for, for the budget. And Stephen consequently decided that he would do it pretty much like an independent film, even though it was a union film through Universal, in that he would just hire young filmmakers to, to do it with him so that he could afford to make the movie. So he called me primarily after he had talked to Larry to see if uh, he had seen Body Heat and liked it very much. And he said, well, you know, E.T. is a film, as much as it is a, a, a special effects film, with the puppet and everything, it is really a film about the relationships. The relationship with the children with E.T., the children with each other, and the relationship with their mother. So he wanted somebody who could deal with relationships in a very emotional way. So through his association with Larry, they had a little chit-chat. Larry asked me if I would be interested. I said, well, of course I'll be interested, but I would like to read the script. So Stephen invited me down to MGM, where his offices were at the time, and said, why don't you stay in my office, read the script, and I'll be back in a couple hours and we'll talk about it, which is precisely what I did. I was sworn to top secrecy. The name of the script then, the working title, was A Boy's Life, and that's the title we used through production and post-production. And uh, that's a little bit of the short version of how I got involved 
on ET. And did anybody have any sense at the time, even though it was a $10 million, which in my mind still is not low budget, but in, uh, you know, back in the early 80s is a, a you know, it's not nothing, but at the same time in the world of Steven Spielberg and Raiders of the Lost Ark, like it's kind of pennies. So did you, did you guys have any inkling of what you were sitting on and what it was going to become before it came out? Or were you just completely in shock when it ended up earning, I think it's like four or $500 million at this point? Well, first of all, of course, anybody would be surprised with that kind of mammoth success. And it is a perennial success in that you know, now children are, are adults, they have their own children, they want their children to look at E.T., and it just has has stayed a perennial favorite. But at the time, to answer your question, no, we really didn't know it was going to be this mammoth hit, although I'd have to say that when I read the script, I was absolutely convinced it was going to be an extraordinary, beautiful little film. And when we were working on it, all of us always referred to it as Stephen's little film, as opposed to Close Encounters <laughs> and all the other films that he had made before that, which were pretty large, you know, Jaws and so forth. So this was billed always as a small, low-budget film. But as after I read Marissa Matheson's script, I knew that th it was absolutely a, a wonderful, wonderful script. And I knew that if we were able to approach the storytelling and warmth of the story and the relationships, if we could get that on film, it was going to be an, uh, really a beautiful, beautiful film. I didn't know it was going to be such a big hit, but a short answer would be that the script was fabulous. My first conversation with Stephen was so reassuring. The pieces just fell into place. What can I say? It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Well, and I'm definitely one of those people that has the same story where I can tell you that it's actually one of my first memories ever being in a movie theater was seeing E.T. When people say, oh, I have this you know, memory. The first time I was in the theater, really young, you know, it was just that magical moment. E.T. is one of those for me. And I now have also shown it to my kids and now my son just loves it. So just like a couple of days ago, I mean, he's almost seven now. So he knows how to run Netflix and run the internet and Apple TV and all that. I'm like, what do you want to watch? He's like, I want to watch E.T. again. So, yeah. I mean, it, it really is a multi multi-generational favorite and it completely holds up because I've been tr I've been trying to show them all the great films from the 70s the 80s some from the 90s like all these seminal family films that came out and some of them do not hold up but E.T. just holds up perfectly I, I really believe it's because in fact at a certain point when Stephen was shooting when they were really shooting a lot of the puppet he came to we, we had dailies always at noon when we had our lunch break and then we would look at him again in the evening because Stephen kept saying, you know, if we get the relationship between Elliot and E.T., and people can accept E.T. as this little animal with his own personality and his own way of being as a, as a little, just a little, a beautiful little being, the movie will work. But if we, if we cannot get this puppet to work, that's going to be our downfall. So we were always keenly aware that getting the puppet work to work was the biggest, biggest challenge in the movie. And obviously it does because people just love that little, that little guy. Well, and one of the things that I've really noticed from watching the film as an adult is that now that we have all this new technology and all of the CG, like you can tell that it's, it's fake, but because emotionally the film works so well, you forget so quickly. And now like seeing that after 
spending the last 20 years seeing CG animated puppets and characters, you feel so much more connected to a fake piece of plastic than you do to some of these brilliantly animated characters. And I, I don't really understand why. Maybe it's because it's this physical thing that existed in front of the camera. Maybe it's all in the, the writing. I don't really know what it is, but I really had this visceral reaction where I was like, this is such a different experience than these new CG characters. And the funny thing is, I specifically remember this moment when I was watching for the first time and my son was like, there's something funny about that thing. Is it real? Because he had never seen a film with these real puppeted characters, like these, these animatronic characters. He was, he grew up on CGI. So it, he actually noticed, he's like, there's something different about that. Is that real? So I thought that was really telling and interesting just about how much things have changed. Yes. And I think that, you know, model shop, you can't underestimate the fact that there's an object, a 3D object, you know, an object with its own dimension and its own movement alive in the frame with the live characters. It's not Roger Rabbit either. It's not an animated, it's not CG. It's, it's a real, honest to God thing. It's a, it's a, it's a thing, it's a puppet. So um, I think there is a, a real advantage in having a, a three-dimensional object that is being photographed with, with those children. Uh, it's it's totally convincing with the voice and the movement and all the work that went into creating the character. I, th I think we did our work pretty well because people never seem to question, you know, is that a piece of plastic? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you really forget immediately if, if you're old enough to understand that clearly it's not real. You forget in about 30 seconds. And I think maybe that's part of it is that when I watch these brilliantly animated and executed films, I never have that moment of forgetting that it's fake because I know that it was done by computer, even if the animation is amazing. I really wish that we could kind of maybe this is just me starting to to get a little bit older and hark me back on the olden days. But I just I'm watching all these 80s films over again for the first time with my son. And I just miss that that sense of everything feeling real as opposed to everything being computer generated against green screens. Well, now, one of, one of the interesting things to do is to look at the most recent Star Wars film. And Abrams and Larry actually talked a lot about CG versus uh, model shop. And a lot of the characters actually were model shop puppets. So they had a combination of both in that film, and I thought they pulled it off extremely well. You really do believe that a number of those very, very large, gigantic characters, you, you believe them far more than you would a CG character. So there's something about it. There's something about being a child, in the case of E.T., being able to relate to an object on in the screen directly, as opposed to if, if uh, Stephen had said, okay, now, Elliot, you're just going to make believe that there's a character here and you're going to relate to it, as opposed to a real puppet there in front of the child relating to the puppet. It's just very, very different. Yes, I, I could not agree with that more. And I could probably talk your ear off for two hours alone just about the, you know, animatronics and puppeteers and just the, the experience working on E.T. But what I really want to dive into and the whole reason that you're here and I was so inspired to have this conversation with you was I really want to talk about the lifestyle that you designed over the course of your career. But I also want to talk about how things have changed in this industry. So it doesn't have to be E.T., but in that period of your career, whether it was E.T. or it was Big Chill, Silverado, kind of after you'd made your big break, 
break and you were working on these very high profile Hollywood films. What was a day in the life back then? So it would have been, you know, the, the early to mid eighties before digital editing, when you actually had to order a dissolve from the lab and wait for it. Like one of the, the things that I hear from people now so often is, oh man, it was so easy back then. And they, they would order a dissolve at three in the afternoon and take the rest of the day off. And now we've got it so hard because we have this digital technology. So just kind of walk me through what things look like when you worked on these big films 30 or 40 years ago. And then I just want to talk about how things have evolved or devolved since then. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the topo mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the topo mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. To answer your question, we never ordered an optical and then sat around for the afternoon because there was always so much to do. On it, it, it really, you would have two or three things that you were working on at once. For instance, we would go through the very same routines we do now where we would have dailies every day. We'd look at dailies. Then we looked at dailies as a group as opposed to looking at them alone now, which I find to be one of the huge losses in the filmmaking process. But nevertheless, the editor then as now always looks at dailies, always takes notes, always thinks about things before starting to actually put scenes together. And then, just as it is now, scenes were shot out of order. So we would work on scenes as they were shot, putting them together, working from the time that the filming started. And then a week, maybe two weeks after we would wrap, we would have, I would have the first screening for the director, which would be in a screening room because we had film and, uh, you know, just very minimal effects and uh, dialogue and music. So we, we 
went through the same routine, but we were working on physical pieces of film as opposed to working on a computer. But it was uh, instant access in the sense that you could go to a box, get a roll of film, put it on the movieola or later on a Kim or a Steenbeck or a flatbed, and uh, look at whatever piece of film you wanted to see by, by virtue of uh, taking it out of a film box and, and going down and unwrapping it, putting it in the movieola, looking at it, marking it, splicing it, putting it together until a scene was made and then would move on. So the big difference that I can see, and there are lots of differences in the way that we work then and the way we work now, is that, number one, we had more time to think about it because in order to manipulate pieces of film, it took a long time. So you wouldn't just start cutting. You would literally think about the intent of the scene. You would think about the performances. You would have a pretty good idea of what you wanted to do before you started. And believe it or not, putting a scene together was usually pretty quick because you had done all of the hard work ahead of time. Now, I see a lot of younger editors do not go through that rigorous discipline of thinking, of making notes, of, of really knowing what you do, what you want to achieve before you start. They simply just start cutting without even looking at daily sometimes, just saying, oh, well, the last take is always good. I'll just use that and I'll go back and review the others. On a fundamental level, the editing is the same, whether you're working on film or you're working on digital images, you know, on a computer. But the biggest difference is that we took the time to think about it, to really think about the relationships, to think about the performances, to think about what's the first shot and the last shot of a scene, to really have a plan before starting to work. For instance, on the last thing that I did, which was an HBO film for a political film called All the Way, meaning All the Way with LBJ, that uh, Jay, Jay Roach directed. And because he started on film first, and obviously now is perfectly comfortable in the digital discipline, but he shoots and thinks about film as film. So we really had a kind of a similar background in that we were using digital technology, but thinking and reacting to film as if it were film. That means looking at dailies. We, we sometimes would look at dailies together, but not too much because we just simply didn't have time. But Jay always looked at dailies. I always looked at dailies and we would chit chat about it. And because it was the film was being shot at um, Culver Studios, our editing rooms were right next to the stages. So anytime there was a break in, in the shooting, many times Jay would come upstairs where we had the editing room and would look at what I was scenes that I was working on and would give me pointers and, and comments and I would make corrections, make adjustments. And uh, we worked very much as if we were working on film every day, getting in touch with each other, talking about the scenes, talking about the performances, um, talking about what, what was needed, what, what we could use less of, what we needed more of, and just working as a team day by day, day by day. Now that's a luxury because most of the time now, uh, a director is so completely involved and the schedules are so much shorter for shooting that the director many times doesn't have time to even think about the editing until the film is wrapped. And then you're sort of showing him scenes or her scenes without having had any dialogue or even looking at dailies until the very end of the movie. And that I just find that's just not the way to make a film. 
you just don't get the best out of the material that way. Yeah, I, I could not agree more that it's it's a very collaborative process. And being younger in the industry, I actually haven't had the experience that much of being so involved with the director and tell the director's cut because they are so inundated with so many requests and shorter schedules. And there are sometimes, especially in television, where I will not have ever spoken to, had a single email exchange, or even have had met the director at all until after I handed in a first cut of an episode. And then our conversations starts and then they get an entire four days to try and give their their thoughts and their ideas and clearly tv is different from film but the two worlds are kind of merging but um i want i want to back up a second because i think that you hit on just one of my giant pet peeves and something that i taught my students for years at usc and anytime i talk on panels i talk about this and it's the idea of how to approach the material when you first start because especially in television most of the editors that i know in tv they said there's just too many dailies they're shooting too much i don't have enough time so my process is that i just watch the final take and i start cutting and if there's something that really isn't working like somebody flubbed a line forgot a line then i'll kind of scan through to find that missing piece and to me this is and yes in the short term, you might be saving time in your first edit. But if you're looking over the course of the entire process and the project until you lock picture, you're actually wasting an immense amount of time because you don't know the material. You're going to have to scan through it anyway, and you can't devise the plan like you said. So for me, I watch every single bit of dailies chronologically the way that they were shot on set. So I just create a digital version of a cam roll and I just sit down and watch everything. And I don't even take out the stuff before and after action. It's anytime they hit the record button between on and off, I watch that. And at first it's a little bit more time consuming, but I'm able to, to, like you said, I can devise a mental plan and really note, here's what I want the scene to be about. And Hey, there was this one moment where they were waiting for a reset because an airplane flew overhead, but I saw this look in the main character's eye. That was the strongest look in all the takes. I'm going to build my entire scene around that one stolen look. And that's now my plan. But if you've discovered that look when you're two days before you lock picture, you, you can't build a scene around it. It's too late. So I think that having come up through the film process, that it's it makes such a big difference the way that you approach it, even though you're now working with digital material. Right, right. Okay, I have the same routine every day. I read the script first, where I have, uh, you know, made my notes of when I first read the script. I, I read the scene. I think about the intent. I think about essentially what is going to be needed in the scene. And then I start looking at all the angles and making notes. I look at all the dailies. And that may take sometimes as much as four or five hours. It, you know, the way they shoot these days, sometimes it can be six or seven hours. But I, I have that discipline of looking at dailies. And then I start to cut. And the cutting actually goes pretty fast. It doesn't take so long. Then I will, once I have made my first pass through the scene, cutting it, I put it aside and I won't review it until the next morning. Then the next morning, the very first thing I do is I review the scene that I had done the day before and make a few quick changes and just put it aside again. By now it is looking better. It's actually playing pretty well, the scene. So I just kind of put a pin in it, put it aside. Look at the dailies for the next scene that's up for me to see, which will be either a long or long involved scene or a short scene or whatever. But I do the very same thing. I think about the intent. I think about the performances. I think about what the director had wanted 
you know, what might have been the first shot that would be the best, you know, design of the scene, the mise-en-scene of the scene. And I, I do the same thing again. I look at everything, take notes, cut that version, put it aside, look at it the next morning. So now scenes are starting to pile up and I begin beginning to have scenes that can actually be put together to make a sequence. When I have enough of those, I put them all together, look at that, then make revisions based upon the sequence. And when that is finished, I put that aside. All the while I'm cutting new scenes every day. So they, the pieces just start to build and they build organically because they're always connected. The scenes, the performances, the emotional life is always connected all the way through. So that's essentially how I go about my work every day when we're when the film is being shot. Then, of course, it changes dramatically when the director comes in because we start working as a team, really thinking about the film as a whole, what works, what doesn't work, where we need to put our attention. And then it evolves into looking at it, at it, it ourselves in the screening room, uh, then getting outsiders to look at it with us. And then eventually we have a series of previews. All the while, changes are being made, changes are being made, changes are being made. So that, and I'm sure you do the very same thing, but it's it's a discipline that, um, you know, you always do your work, you, you work hard every day, you just keep up, you keep up the steam and just keep rolling through it. As far as the kind of, when you were talking about like the, the process for the editor's cut versus director's cut and so on, the analogy that I always use for people is it's kind of like, and it isn't kind of, it is a relationship, a very deep, intimate relationship with another human being. So when you're kind of interviewing for a job, at least on a feature film, it's a little different in TV, but it's kind of like you're you're getting ready for a marriage. You're saying, is this somebody that I can marry? And the editor's cut, that's the dating phase. That's like when you're, you're just loving each other and, you know, oh, that's a great idea. Oh, I love what you did there and I can't wait to get started. And then the director's cut starts and you're living together. And like you're seeing all the warts and you're in long hours and man, this guy needs to shower more often, but you really get to know each other. And then comes the, you know, the deeper sides of the marriage and the therapy sessions. But, you know, you, you eventually work through all of it and you walk away with a great product if you both have the same intention, which is it's all about the film. So that that's really how I look at that director-editor relationship. But you're right, it evolves drastically over the course of a single project. And I think one of the things that... Uh... You know, it's, being an editor is not about controlling. It's really about interpreting. We are the interpreter of the script, the writer's intention, and we're the interpreter for all of the grace notes, all of the, in, all of the, the ways that the director wants to approach a scene, a character, uh, a sequence, the overall film. We are his interpreter, which doesn't mean to say that we don't have ideas and plenty of them. But it becomes a, a real, like, as you said, a collaborative work of give and take. Oh, let's try that. That sounds good. Let's try this. Let's try that. Let's try this. It, it is the editing room becomes a sanctuary, a safe place to try a lot of ideas and to solve a lot of problems. And one of the things that you said uh, when you were kind of talking about the director-editor relationship and also just the, the general process is you said, you know, we, we worked very hard. We worked long hours to get it done. And that's where I want to go next is I want to know what the, the actual day in the life looked like as far as hours during the day, number of days in the week, and really kind of put this idea to bed that all of a sudden nowadays, because of digital technology, we're working so much harder than our predecessors 
officers used to. Because when I spoke to Walter Murch, he made it pretty clear that things were pretty rough even back then. So kind of give me your interpretation of what the hours looked like then versus now and if you've seen a change. Well, I could just take one example, for instance, um, on Silverado. Uh, we had uh, we had a long shoot, but it was primarily because of the locations. We were in Santa Fe, and there were a lot. It was a western, so there were lots of horses, lots of wagons, lots of of period, um, you know, costumes and so forth. So the logistics every day of getting to and from the set were enormous, and it took quite a while to shoot. And we thought that we had a, a nice schedule of something like. I think it was eight or nine months after after they wrapped to uh, edit the film, but as it turned out, we that was cut way short. And so Larry and I, it was like I think it was like we were supposed to have nine months in post, and it was cut down to four. So we realized that we were going to have to change and work. We worked seven days a week while we were at on location. They shot six days a week, and Larry and I went into the cutting room on the seventh day. I didn't have a day off the whole time we were shooting. I might have taken an afternoon off, but we worked straight through from the time we started till we wrapped. And then when we got back to L.A., we worked six days a week until we got it done. It was it was really, really grueling. And uh, I don't know what to say, but you do physical work when you're cutting film. You're lifting rolls of film, moving it around. Uh, we had fairly large crew when we were in Santa Fe, we had, there were three of us, an apprentice and two assistants. And when we got to LA, uh, it expanded somewhat by having even more people on staff. And the sound crew came on when we came back. So they were working simultaneously with us from the time that we wrapped until we finished. So it was a huge crew constantly funneling film, you know, scenes that were cut, recut, cut, recut, going back through editing. All of this was on film. So we didn't have once one of those days that you, that everybody seems to think we had, where we ordered an optical and then went home for the day. Uh, it would never happened. First of all, the assistants ordered the opticals and we would go through two or three iterations of opticals on film until we got something we liked. So eh, there are a lot of misconceptions about how how easy it was when we were on film and how difficult it is now working digitally. Well, and I remember specifically one of the stories that uh, Walter had told me that really resonated was, and I don't remember the exact specifics, but anybody that wants to listen, I can put a link to the show notes to that episode that I did with Walter Murch. Um, but he had mentioned that they were working seven day weeks. I can't remember which uh, which film it was offhand, but it was for, for a major studio. And somebody went to a studio executive and said, listen, everybody's dropping like flies. Like we've got to slow down. We've got to pace ourselves. And the executive simply said, well, then just get more flies. So, and that was not five years ago, that was decades ago. So clearly the mentality hasn't changed as much as the younger editors like to think that, you know, want to become the martyrs and say, nobody's worked as hard as we've worked now. It's like, it, it, the process is different, but the, the hours and the demands are really no different. And you really hit upon something that I wanted to go to next. And that was the idea that when you were working on film, you were moving throughout the day. And anybody that's listened to this show knows that I talk incessantly about the idea 
of moving versus being sedentary and how that affects your creativity. So I really wanted to talk to you specifically because I know that you are really active. I, I think there were three or four times that we had to reschedule podcasts just because you're like, oh yeah, well, I'm going to Yosemite or I'm going to this other national park and I'm going to be walking off the grid for a week or whatever it is. So Talk to me about the difference that you've seen in the way that editors work in their lifestyle and the transition from film to digital. Oh, wow. Well, first of all, like you said, and all of us who've worked on film can really remember that many times we stood, if I was working with a movieola, I would stand all day long and uh, reach up and take pieces of film down. You would be rewinding film. You were constantly in motion. To make a splice, you'd have to move two pieces of film, you splice it together, put it back in the roll and go. Even when we went from moviola to flatbeds, we were always moving film around. And uh, I had I stood to work on a moviola so long that many times I would have my my Kim or Steenbacker Kim and flatbed put up on blocks so I could stand up and work. And I would just use a higher chair to sit down if I got tired. And just only recently, uh, I started out uh, in 95 or 96 when I moved from film to working on first a Lightworks and then an Avid. The first thing that I noticed was that I was far more sedentary and sitting and sitting and sitting and sitting and sitting just drove me crazy. So I started to always take a walk, walking break at lunch. I would have a sandwich or something, made it a rule never to eat at my bench or at my desk, and always would take a lunch break, get outside, walk vigorously around the block, just, just to change where I was looking, change the air, change the way I was thinking. And when I came back, I was always refreshed. So many times late in the afternoon, if we were going to be working late in the evening, I would do the same thing. I'd take a quick half-hour break, walk briskly around the block or around the studio lot, and then go back to work and feel very invigorated and refreshed. I have always exercise and being physically engaged while I'm working has always been a part of the way that I work. I just simply make time for it. And it has, it has kept me, I think, uh, mentally alert and physically strong. Well, and I would say that's an understatement because having met you in person, I mean, you've got the the energy and the vitality and just the, the personality of somebody that's most likely younger than I am. So, you know, you, you look on paper and you're like, oh yeah, she's an old seasoned veteran. But I mean, you just, you wouldn't know it from talking to you or having a conversation. Like you've just got so much energy to you. And I'm really curious to know what the biggest thing that you notice when you start, because you said to yourself, you're like, wow, I'm really sedentary. What did you start to notice were some of the things that were different about either your performance, how you felt, or how you were working as an editor when that started to happen? Well, the, the first two or three jobs, I didn't, I didn't quite realize, you know, because we made a transition. We always had a film project parallel with the digital project. So I would always, you know, look in on the film project and, and sometimes sit down and make a few cuts on on film and, and it wasn't you know just from one day to the next we just forgot film so I began to realize after I did a couple of films that were purely uh, with no film whatsoever they might have been shot on film but we never saw the film it was always you know cut negative I, I did that's when I began to realize that I was sitting and sitting and sitting and I was it was driving me crazy I wasn't thinking straight I would forget 
footage. I've never forgotten footage. I would forget, you know, take 52 A, B, and C. I would forget, oh, that was a close-up. It was this or that. I can retain footage really very well, but I was beginning to realize that I was looking for footage more than, than retaining it because it's so easy to do digitally. You can just pop it up and say, oh, yeah, I remember that now. So the discipline of looking at film, remembering it, was starting to starting to lose it. Then I began to realize that I wasn't eating as well. I was not exercising as much. I was not taking breaks as much. So I told myself, I have to go back to the things that kept me going when I was cutting film and do that when I'm now cutting digitally. And it, uh, it really turned me around. So I, I know... There's a huge difference in your mental acuity and your mental uh, agility if you between the time you know that you're active or that or when you're sedentary. There's just a huge, huge difference. So I started. Um, I, I get up in the morning and I do a round of exercise. It's just you know like walking or whatever. I don't go to a gym because I just can't stand the gym life. But I get up before I go to work. I have a a little bit of breakfast. I spend about half an hour, 45 minutes exercising. And then when I get to work, I'm alert. I'm awake. I'm alert. I'll have a, maybe a cup of coffee or something. And then I make a rule never, ever, ever to eat in my cutting room. I don't have any junk food in there. I don't have any snacks in there. The snacks are kept in somebody else's room. But I, the only thing that I do is I sip tea throughout the day. And I asked my assistant to bring me a fresh cup a couple of times during the day. And it's always herbal tea. I try to keep a certain amount of exercise, a certain amount of discipline with my diet. And then I try to always get a good night's sleep. The sleep is when you're able to flush out all that garbage that you thought about, renew yourself, and then do it again. So I've, I've learned through trial and error that that's what... That works best for me. Well, and it's not that it just works best for you. It works best for everybody because we're all human beings and that's the way that we are wired. We're wired to be moving and our genetic code expects us to move like 10 to 15 miles per day. And if you're sedentary in front of a computer and you're trying to you know, think intensely and be creative, but you're moving a mile and a half to two miles per day, which is equivalent to about 2000 steps, which is what I'm finding to now be the norm for a lot of people in this industry, then it's absolutely killing your ability to make those creative decisions. And that was the aha moment that I had where at first it was, well, I know that I'm sitting all day long, but as long as I exercise either in the morning or the night, then, you know, I can still be fit and not gain a bunch of weight. And it's, it's kind of more about how much do I weigh and how do I look and how do my clothes fit? All of which are important, but it wasn't until it kind of clicked. I'm like, wait a second, if I'm not moving and I'm sitting all day long, I'm not a good editor. Because like you said, you started losing information. And that's what was happening to me where I have, I don't know if I picked this term up from a book I read or wherever. So if, if this term was coined by somebody else and I'm stealing it, it's not purposely. But I have this process that I call mental digitizing, where I just watch the footage intently and I'm just digitizing it into my brain. So like you said, three months later, somebody says, I know that th th in this one take, this one guy did that thing. Yeah, I know exactly where that is. And when I sit all day long, I lose that ability. I'm like, yeah, I, you're right. But I don't remember seeing that. Where was that? 
But if I'm moving all day long, then I'm able to retain so much more information to learn more. And it makes such a huge difference in my performance. And like you said, you know, you make the time to do these things, but it actually isn't about finding more time. I would assume that in your case, because I hear it from so many other people, you're actually gaining time back because you're so much more efficient and so much more energetic by the end of the day. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I my routine is pretty much the same. Uh, and... Um, and I find that it really, it, it is invigorating. And when I start to, to sort of drop off, I drop off fast, you know. <laughs> so I, I know when I have to make an adjustment in, in the way that I, either the way that I eat or the way that I exercise or the way that I get the proper amount of sleep. So I'm very much attuned to what my body needs and I will give it. I'll give it whatever it needs. And I just have the faith that if I do that, I know I'll be okay in the editing department. Because I'm, you know, I feel at least now this far along in my career, I know that I know how to put a movie together. And if I start to lose it physically, I know I have to stop and take care of it right now. Yeah, and that's really the the mindset that I feel that so few people have adopted because we've kind of become extensions of our workstation. It's like, oh, well, you know, we're just the keyboard monkeys. We just press the buttons. And if the computer's running, then I need to be running. But instead of looking at it that way, if you really think, well, I'm a, I'm a high-performance machine or I'm, you know, I, I'm a racehorse. If you're somebody that spent a million dollars on a racehorse, you're going to let the poor thing rest and you're going to take care of it and you're going to feed it well. And once you kind of make that mindset shift, all of a sudden everything starts to click into place and your efficiency increases and the quality of your work increases and your mood increases. You're not the grumpy editor anymore. And I'm I'm guessing you've probably run into a grumpy editor or two in your career. Oh, I have. Yeah. Uh-huh. They seem to grousing is what they do best. <laughs> and that's really, really counter counterproductive. You know, you've got to keep a positive and an optimistic uh, point of view. You just, that That's our job. We have we you know, to be a grouser, to be an old complainer, an old curmudgeon, that's just not going to hack it. No, nobody wants to be around you. You're not bringing any life to the movie. You, you are uh, smothering it with your bad attitude. So the best thing to do is to realize, like you said, that we are a high-performance machine. We have to give it what it needs. If it needs exercise, if it needs diet, if it needs you know proper kind of food, if it needs sleep, it'll work. Now, the interesting thing is that once I realized that I needed to recoup my routine that I had when I was cutting film and apply it to cutting digitally, things started to really turn around for me. And um, I, have, I've, I firmly believe in movement makes the difference. It really, really does. It just We're just wired. Like you said, we're wired for it. We have to keep it up. And I'm able to do much more work, much more efficiently if I've taken care of myself. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make 
make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Well, and, and movement is also one of those keystone habits because you've also mentioned sleep, you've mentioned diet, and those things are not going to fall into place if you're sitting around all day long doing nothing. Because if you start to get the engine turned on, then all of a sudden you're going to be more conscious of your diet and all of the hormones that are kicking in in your brain saying, I must have crunchy snacks, I must have sugar. Those hormones become dissipated as you move more. And as you move more, you're able to get deeper sleep, get more restful sleep and be more refreshed. So it's kind of like if you're going to think, all right, there are all these things that I can do with my life. I can eat better. I can exercise. Exercise, I can move, I can change my sleep, I can be more organized, I can meditate, whatever it is, you got to find one domino, just focus on one domino to get started. And you find the biggest one and all of a sudden the rest just kind of fall when you push that first one over. And through 10 years of research, there is no one definitive answer. But in my opinion, the big domino is you just got to start to move more, then you can focus on everything else. And it sounds like you had the exact same revelation. Yeah, I did too. I, I really, at a certain point, I realized First of all, I, at growing up, I grew up in rural Oklahoma. Uh, my dad was a farmer, essentially a ranch farmer. And I spent most of my early childhood outside doing all kinds of things. And that has, that has become a part of me. Now, how I got involved in a cutting room is probably, <laughs> you know, I have to examine my mind about that. From the time of being a little kid, I was always very, very physically active. And I realized right away when I got involved primarily in music that all those hours in a practice room or practicing really didn't work for me unless I kept up my exercise. So from a very early age, I had the connection of my mind working, my mind works when my body's working right. And if my body's working right, everything else will fall into place, including sleep. So. Um, this has been a lifelong habit. And sometimes you'll get into situations where in editing, you're just, you feel overwhelmed with the amount of work. And I have learned to say, when that starts to happen, there's only so much I can do. It's better to stop and to be fresh and to start when I'm fresh. And I just have faith in the fact that the editing routine will kick in and everything will fall into place. You know, I just don't get as nervous as I used to because I know that 
ultimately everything everything will work if you take care of yourself. Yeah, and that and that's the fear, that's the anxiety that everybody that does creative work knows, which is if I stop, I may not get everything done that I need to get done in time. Therefore, I must keep going. We've all had that fear. I still fight that fear every single day thinking, well, if if I don't work this extra hour, then I'm never going to have time to make up the extra hour and I'm going to miss my deadline. But if you if you play the long game, you're still going to get everything done, but you're going to do a better job of it. The main thing is you have to have enough confidence to have total faith in the editing process and the way that I'm able to keep the, you know, because I wring my hands and do all the things that people do. You know, I get nervous. I, I, I'm worried about this scene. I'm worried about that. I'm worried about this performance. I'm worried about meeting a deadline. Don't believe for a moment that I don't have those same worries. I just know how to put them into context. And I have faith in myself and I have faith in the editorial process that if I show up every day, do a good day's work, I know it will get done. So I, you just have to convince yourself and have proof that that actually will work. And once you believe it, you just do it. Now, I'm not a gym person, so I don't go to a gym. I just I either garden or I walk. I used to, to jog. I don't do that anymore because of my ankles and my hips. <laughs> Can't take it. But... I find that if you find an exercise where you can tax your body, it frees your mind. And that's whatever exercise that is for you, that's what an editor needs. Just enough to tire your body, to tax your body, and just enough mind work, you know, not not too not to have to concentrate too much when you're exercising, because that's when it frees your mind. And if you're able to get a routine that helps you do that. You will go to work every day with your mind being refreshed and alert. And that's when you work the best. Well, and what's funny is that I've just now had a revelation that I have not been able to put my finger on. And I just listening to you talk, I figured it out. And that is when you said, I'm not a gym person. And I'm like, yeah, I've never been a gym person either. And it goes just beyond the whole gym culture and sweaty machines and all that. But you said you grew up on a farm and I did too. And I spent most of my life where, you know, people, when I talk to people now living in Los Angeles, you know, oh, what did you do growing up? Oh, I went to camp and did this and soccer. And I'm like, oh, well, I built barbed wire fences and herded cattle. And then I realized that I never had the gym mentality because my work was my exercise. And it just hit me that that is what you and I have done with editing is we've turned our work into our exercise, which is something you didn't have to do as a film editor. Your work was your exercise. And does it mean that you shouldn't still go out and be active outside of your work? Of course not. Like exercise is absolutely paramount to better health. But if you can find a way to turn your work during the day into your exercise, that's when all the pieces come together. And I just made that realization now. Yeah, that's exactly it. You just you just have to find a way to tax your body enough during the day that you'll be physically tired at the end of the day, as well as mentally tired. And when you're able to kind of get that balance going for yourself, you it, you just have trust it. It'll work. It's great. The same way we trust the editorial process. I trust the process of looking at dailies, thinking about a scene, putting it together, evaluating it, doing it again until all of those refinements fall into place and, and then everybody else's work comes in. You have faith in you know, the sound editors, the music editor, the composer. You just have faith that all of that is going to work because you, have, you just trust it. You trust your body. 
you trust your mind, you trust the process, and it's, you know, it, it ultimately makes you into a very optimistic, very can-do, project-oriented editing person. Yeah, and if you're, if you're a director or producer and you're looking to hire somebody, would you rather have the grumpy old sedentary curmudgeon or somebody that has boundless energy and all kinds of passion for the project? I mean, that's if you're thinking, well, I don't quite have the resume and I don't have the experience and I'm up against people that have a larger resume, you come into a room and you just bowl them over with your passion and your energy. Like you, there aren't a lot of people that can compete with that in this industry now. Unfortunately, I, I can see with a lot of my friends who you know, contemporaries, they're just having a hard time. They're having a hard time with the way the business is changing. But you know, this business has always changed. The business has always chased after the cheapest buck. If you remember back in the 60s, there were the spaghetti westerns. They were all being shot in, in Spain and in uh, Italy. This, there's nothing new that's going on today other than the way that film is being delivered to people's houses. You know, it's we're not we're not going to the movie theater as much as we are looking at, at films at home on our TV sets or on our computers or on our phones, God forbid. But the business has always been the same. It's always been breakneck. It's always been get as much as you can out of all these people uh, with the limited number of hours. It's jam, jam, jam. The funnel is always work is always funneled down to this tight juggernaut for editors. It, that's just the way it is, so get over it. You know, Find a way to get over it. And the way that I have found to deal with the pressures of today's editing, which are essentially the same as they've always been, is to take care of yourself first. And the rest of it comes along, you know. We haven't talked about it, but I, I eat good food. I don't eat junk. I don't eat candy. Although, I, and I love chocolate, but I just tell myself, that's not gonna do it. You know, an apple's a lot better. Um, you know, having a good salad is much better than, than a piece of pizza. And along those lines, if in the evening we're working long hours and the producer decides he's going to be a nice guy and bring in some food for the editors and they bring in cold pizza, I say, I'm sorry, but that is not a meal. I won't eat that because it won't help me. I'd rather not eat than to eat crap. So you really, really have to insist upon being treated right, having a real real meal, having a salad, having fruit, having plenty of um, liquid to drink during the day. Take time out to walk around the block and let your mind rest for a second. Well, and that was one of the big revelations that I had as well when it came to food. And I, I love what you're saying about, you know, the producer saying, hey, guys, we're we're going to be super nice and we're going to get you pizza. Um, I mean, everybody that's listening to this, whether you're an editor or you work in any kind of creative industry, you're like, yeah, we've all been there before. But you're right in that that's not helping anybody except the guy that has the Excel spreadsheet with a budget. Because they're like, well, pizza is the cheapest and it's going to feed the most people. But it's not going to help your productivity. When they bring it into your room and put it in front of you and say, can you eat? We had only one day on Jay's film, uh, all the way, Jay Roach's film, where we actually had to sit. In, the only way that we could have a lunch was to sit in the cutting room and eat it there. And that's when the HBO heads of departments came, and the only time they could come was at lunch. So that only happened once. It was too bad, but um, we got over it. It was fine. 
And there are going to be extremes like that, that you can't live with absolutes and there always have to be exceptions. But if you have a system and you have ground rules and you don't break them 97% of the time, there's always room for exceptions. But for me, it was really that realization where food is not just about calories. It's not just about, oh, well, this is going to add some to my hips or whatever it is. It was, if I eat this stuff at three o'clock in the afternoon now, and I know I'm working until 10 p.m., how am I going to feel four hours from now? And what kind of output am I going to have? And as soon as I started to tie my food choices to my output, that's where it became so much easier to say, well, everybody's having their afternoon birthday cake because it's somebody's birthday, but I got a really tight deadline. I don't want the cake. And it no longer became, well, I, I love sugar and I shouldn't, but I will anyway. It was me being fearful of not being able to do my job creating that mental switch changed everything for me. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. People, I have lots of friends who are always trying to lose weight and everything, and they're always on a diet and this and that. Frankly, I've never been on a diet. I've never once in my life have I put myself on a diet. Maybe I should, but I've never done it. I just find that if I eat well and exercise every day, it sort of takes care of itself. I don't have to think about it too much. Yeah, and that's really the way that it works for me is I have tried diets in the past. It's been a long time, um, but I have tried crash diets and experimented, and they're always miserable. It's always about deprivation. It's always about I just need to slog through and do X, Y, Z as the plan indicates. And then at day 60 or day 90, it's over. I've lost the weight and I can go back to my old habits. And I found that if I just focus on making small tweaks and I do them over a longer period of time. Now I have, if you look at what I eat now on a regular basis versus what I ate five years ago, nothing is the same, but I'm not on a diet. I just have a different diet overall. So for me, diet is just defined as these are the food choices that I make. But like if, if I'm at a lunch and I remember this distinctly about a year ago, we were having a, a wrap lunch. It was one of our last weeks on a TV show and they had like these cheesy fries or whatever it was like some big plate of appetizers for everybody. And and they're like, oh, you should have some. And I was like, no, no, thank you. I'm good. And they're like, man, you've got such strong willpower. And I was thinking it actually isn't willpower because I don't want them because I've created that that switch in my mind where I tie this to my productivity and to my output. So it, it, it's really those small changes and not thinking about it as a diet per se that can make all the difference in the world. Yeah. And a lot of times when uh, no, I, I'm not as disciplined as you are, because once or twice, you know, my guys will want to go off campus and go have a lunch someplace. And I remember once uh, on the last show, we went, we were in Culver City, and we went to someplace called Kettle Fried or something like that. And I had a piece of fried chicken. Oh, I paid dearly for that. Oh my God. I, I was so sluggish and so horrible for the rest of the day. <laughs> it just reminded me that I, I can't do that kind of stuff anymore. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's funny though that you say, and I want to make sure that the people know this is that you say, Oh, well, I'm not as disciplined as you trust me. I break protocol all the time. Like, but for me, it's about making the conscious decision to say, all right, based on my timeline over the next day or two days, it doesn't really matter how like efficient I am. I just go to town and when I do it, I do it. I mean, like I will have, you know, red velvet cake and I'll have Oreos. Like, so it's not like I'm like this perfect little, you know, vegan machine. Like I deviate all the time. I'm just much more intentional and selective about when I do it. And I just kind of follow this rule that I call the, the 80, 20 rule, which, which isn't something that I named. I mean, it's, it's out there and has been coined by much larger names in the, the fitness and health industries, 
But 80% of the time, I'm very clear about making healthy choices. And 20% of the time, I'm equally as clear about making absolutely horrible choices, but loving those choices, not feeling guilty, and then getting right back on the wagon the next day saying, all right, that's out of the way. I'm good for a while. And it makes life so much more enjoyable. Oh, yeah. Well, that's great. Well, what I do usually is I, you know, I try to eat well, but I'll, I'll lapse and I'll say, okay, that was it on Monday. I won't do that again this week. That, that's good. Once is enough. Then I'll, you know, I may fall off the wagon another time the next week or whatever. But I, I just know that I feel so much better when I'm taking care of myself that, that I'm not tempted too much, you know. The other thing is that uh, I, I'm just mindful when I am eating. I see a lot of people who just jam, they just eat fast because they feel, well, I'll just eat fast and get over it. I, maybe it's the time that I've lived in and worked in France, but people stop at lunch and they actually have a sit-down meal. It might be short, you know, an hour or something, but it's they actually savor their food and eat it. And the, the portions are small, but it's the getting together and talking that is what's satisfying as satisfying as eating, uh, you know, a big meal. So um, what I try to do now is have the editing staff stop with me and we eat together. We eat, we talk, maybe we talk shop, and maybe we don't. And it refreshes everyone. And it does, you don't eat that much, but you actually are eating with others and enjoying it. Food is to be enjoyed, you know, it's not a... If you start, if you get into the mindset that you are denying yourself, it just won't work. Well, and it, I mean, science is even proven through extensive research that you actually digest your food better. You absorb the nutrients more if you eat slowly and if you eat amongst other people, because eating amongst other people promotes conversation. It reduces stress. It reduces cortisol in your system. So long term, once again, you're actually better off having that 45 minutes or an hour where you take lunch with your group and you chat and like like you said, sometimes you talk shop, sometimes you don't. That's something that we've done on uh, several projects now. Unfortunately, we weren't able to do it that much on Empire, but that show is just a Megilla gorilla all in itself. Uh, but on several other shows, we just, my assistant and I, Natalie, just made it a point. Like, all right, it's lunchtime. Where do you want to go today? Meaning not our office. And sometimes it was just the break table. Sometimes it was outside. Like, but we always got away, but we were still able to leave earlier than most people because it was a refresher. It was like, it was like a nitrous booster where all of a sudden we have this extra energy boost in the afternoon that you don't get if you live in front of your desk. Yeah, it's like a refresh on your computer. You know, it just does work. You know, you're able to kind of start back and step back a little bit. Your judgment's better. Your output is better. Just everything about it. And we just, on the last one, we had such a congenial crew that we'd all get together and laugh and, you know, we had a good time. We enjoyed ourselves. So, you know, it was cool. Well, and the other thing that I find that it brings about as well is that especially in our industry or creative industries where you work mostly in a solitary nature. So whether or not you're sedentary or moving is one thing. But as an editor, you kind of have to be solitary because you're in your room, you have the sound in there. Like you, you, it's very hard to do our jobs when you have four people in the same office. And if you don't stop to take lunch, and especially in television where everybody's on their own schedules, you're kind of on your own little island, when stuff really starts to get nuts, you feel like you're on your own. You feel like you're you're shouldering this burden all by yourself. But if you take the time to actually build relationships with your comrades and with your colleagues, 
when things do get crazy and they always do, you feel like you have each other's backs, even though you're working on your own, a lot of that promoted by taking those breaks and taking those lunches, which makes a huge difference in morale and ultimately is going to help everybody weather the storm that ultimately comes on every project. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There are these, always these sort of moments on a movie. It could be as much as a day. It could be, you know, as little as a day and as much as a month when, you know, you're really churning through the stuff. You know, if you have, a sort of group of people that you enjoy and that you sort of can commiserate with and can take the madness and sort of remove it from yourself, it's much better. The minute that you start to take the madness on as being your own, that's when you get into trouble. It's better to separate it out saying, I'm not mad, the project's mad, but I'm not. You know, this is crazy, but I'm not crazy. I'll just chip away at this. I'll just think about it very, very and one task at a time until it gets done. Instead of getting crazy about it, thinking about the whole all the time. I have to remind myself about that too. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, that having been said, um, since we're speaking so much about time, I want to be very, very respectful of your time because, you know, after it's now taken us, I don't know, about 47 million different tries to connect, we've finally done it. I'm so, so excited that we were able to get this conversation on the books. I want to be able to to do it again. But um, I mean, we've definitely run over and I'm hoping that my audience doesn't mind that we've run a little bit over, but I do want to be respectful of your time in the real world. So this has been tremendously eye-opening for for me. I hope that it has been for my audience as well. And I cannot tell you how blessed I am just to have connected with you and learned your story because it really has had an impact on the things that I'm doing and inspired me to continue doing the things that I'm doing, knowing what a difference it has made for you over the years as well. Oh, yes. It's really, it's really amazing. And the other thing that I might just touch on is that once you kind of get into the, into this kind of groove of exercise, good food and, and sufficient sleep, is that when you're no longer on a movie, you kind of want to keep it up. And I am a long distance walker. I don't do physically, what can I say, terribly exerting exercise anymore. But I will, you know, take three days and walk 35 miles or something. Just enjoy the solitude of being outside and discovering, you know, nature as it were. Go to Yosemite. We have beautiful parks in California, lovely places, outings, um, I took not too long ago an urban walk with a friend of mine. We started in Manhattan Beach and ended up at the Getty Museum. It took us three days of walking. It was wonderful. Just an urban walk. Uh, I've been on long distance walks in Europe. I, the Camino in the Camino de Santiago in in Spain. I've done two uh, long walks in England and in Ireland and uh, other walks in in uh, Italy and in uh, other other walks in France as well. So it, it just, you begin to incorporate this in the way that you live when you're not working on a film. I'm an avid gardener. I'm out in my garden every day. Uh, I did a couple of hours this morning of lugging heavy pots around and digging holes. And <laughs> so it, it just becomes a, an extension of the things that you enjoy about your work become an extension of the things you enjoy when you're not working. It's a real lifestyle choice that has extraordinary dividends. That's about all I can say. Well, and I, I couldn't cap it off any better than that because you are living, breathing proof of the dividends that you will reap by 
you know, living a lifestyle like this, because your your career is, I mean, the the resume that you have and the, the impact you've had on not only the film community, but just culture in general with the films you've worked on is immense, none of which would have happened if you didn't take care of yourself. And, you know, you're, you're still doing the work to this day with plenty of energy and vibrancy. So um, once again, I just want to thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your story and really hope that uh, it inspires other people to really learn to play the long game with their health and, you know, really, really shoot for the stars and not, not worry about just the the choices they need to make today. So. Well, thank you very, very much, Zach. And you are an inspiration to me as well, because I love it when I see young talented editors coming up and they have adopted the same kind of style of living that, that I have. And um, I know that they're going to be okay. It's going to work out. It's going to be great. Well, I'm trying one person at a time, so we'll. Uh, it's, it's a slog, but I'm. We're getting there, so we're we're making a difference. This is good. Great. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, uh, we'll we'll talk again. I hope. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even gonna send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.